I will be reading from the King James Version. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. fellow walked into a church building one Sunday evening during the evening service, and he did not see the time posted anywhere on the outside, so when he got inside, he realized that the service had already started. In fact, the preacher was already preaching. He had no idea because he didn't know when service time was, whether the preacher was just starting his sermon, whether he was midway through, or whether he was about to wrap it up. So after a few minutes, he tapped the shoulder of the couple sitting immediately in front of him and said, how long has he been preaching? And uh, the lady looked back and whispered at him, 25 years. He said, well, he should be about through, shouldn't he? (laughs) And uh, I think of that sometimes when I think about how long I've been doing Fundamental Sunday, which is about 35 years. And I'm not about to be through because this is the best way that I know of to ensure that we get a, a balance of first principles. And also to let our our membership know when it was the best time to invite someone that may not be familiar with churches of Christ or or what to do to be saved or the nature of of, of God's spiritual kingdom, uh, this would be the time to invite them. But it also, again, gives us a balance of, of things that we need to know in terms of the foundation of our faith. You know, we love transformation stories, don't we? I read not too long ago that one of the most popular, in fact, maybe the most popular Christmas story is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And one of the reasons for that is not just the time of the year that that, uh, that, that novel is set in, but also the fact that, um, you know, Scrooge just over, uh, underwent this tremendous transformation in, in his heart and how that it, he was so mean-spirited at the beginning of the story and, and that transformation took place and we've got a completely different Ebenezer Scrooge at the end of the story. Well, what we're looking at this morning is, is a similar kind of story except it's much more impacting and more significant because it's in the spiritual realm. And you know the story and Mike just read there the very first uh, occasion when we see Saul's name mentioned in, in Acts chapter 7. And he was holding the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen. So it's a very ignominious way to begin the narrative of Saul's life. He's, he's holding the cloaks of those who are engaged in killing the first recorded Bible martyr. And so that's a tough way to start. And I don't know about you, but if I didn't know anything else about Saul and about what he was going to be doing with his life, I wouldn't like him. I mean, after all, Stephen is a wonderful man. He's a, a man filled with the Spirit. He's a godly man. And yet Saul is complicit with those who are taking his life. 
So he was involved in persecuting the church and not just Stephen. In fact, if you look over uh, one chapter in Acts chapter 8, look at verses 1 through 4. Now Saul was consenting to his death, that is to the death of Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Sometimes in that, par- that brief paragraph, we, we kind of park on verse 4 because it's worth our attention. And how that the persecution in Jerusalem is what drove those early saints out into the, the nether regions. And in an all likelihood... They would have stayed right there in Jerusalem had it not been for this persecution. But if you read just the first three verses, you can, uh, you can come to the conclusion that you really don't like Saul of Tarsus. Because not only is he helping those who are stoning Stephen to death, but now he is, he is, he's wreaking havoc in the early church. And so he's doing everything he can to make sure that the church is stopped. He is an enemy of God, and, and it's not unfair to label him as such. So the question I want us to ask this morning is, what did Saul, the blind man, see when he was blinded on the road to Damascus that caused that kind of transformation, that would transform him from being the foremost persecutor of Christianity to being the most avid proclaimer of Christianity? You talk about a transformation. It really takes place in these three chapters. And so I want to select some verses. We'll look at those this morning And we'll see the reasons behind Saul's radical transformation. I suggest the first thing this blind man saw was that he saw Jesus as the Son of God. If you found Acts 7 and 8, you're not going to have any problems finding chapter 9. And and look at the first five verses of this chapter. Because Saul is still doing his nefarious work. The Bible says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and then he fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he, and he said, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I really want us to to focus in on the word Lord there at the beginning of verse 5. And if you're thinking that that word was used in a more general way in in the first century world, you would be exactly right. Sometimes the word Lord just kind of means sir, but not here. In this passage, this is, uh, if you go back and look at the Greek, you'll find that the word for Lord in this passage is kurios, which means master. Another word for Lord, but, but acknowledging that, that this is, is the master. And so even with this brief encounter, he's already beginning a transformation between the ears. He's beginning to recognize that, hey, you know, here he is speaking to me miraculously in, in this great light. I'm on my way to... Uh, to get documentation in order to be able to incarcerate and even kill Christians. And, and, and here the Lord himself has encountered me, and, and this is worth thinking about. So he had thought, he had thought that Jesus was a murderer. 
and, and that all who followed him were worthy of death. That's why he's doing what he's doing. But when he was struck by that light from heaven, then Saul began to see Jesus as Lord. You know, the great need for people in our day is to do the same thing. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, 33, said, He who denies me before men, him will I deny before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who's in heaven. You know, we're filled with a, a, word, a, a world of words, aren't we? I mean, verbiage just, is it's just spewing at us from every direction. And you think about the newspapers, you think about the online services that have the news, you think about watching the news on television, and all of those words that are thrown at us. There are no greater words than I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that's the kind of confession that people need to be making today and allow their lives to be transformed based upon the foundation of that kind of confession. It, it turns for a moment, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, Paul kind of reinforces that idea that people need to be confessing the Lord and, and acknowledging his lordship and that he is, in fact, who he claimed to be. This is Philippians 2, and I want us to look at verses 9, 10, and 11. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, the him there, of course, is Christ, and given him the name which is above every name. Watch this carefully, verse 10. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, th there's a case that could be made that, that Paul is, is merely stating what should ideally be the case because of the language. You notice that he says that this should or ought to happen, that considering the evidence, every knee should, ought to bow, every tongue should or ought to confess. I, I think that's the meaning of what Paul is writing in this paragraph. But then you turn to Romans 14. Take a look at verses 11 and 12. And he gets even more specific and more uh, uh, affirmative in, in what he's saying. He states the inevitability of confession in that passage. Not just should or ought to. In Romans 14, 11 and 12, listen to this. For it is as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow. Notice the difference in the grammar. Shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so that everyone shall give an account of himself before God. Someday we're going to all stand across the judgment bar of God. And the central question that will be asked at that time was, did you acknowledge the deity of Jesus Christ? Did you believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be? Did you follow him? Did you recognize that he was, in fact, God-made flesh, and that you gave your very life to make sure that you were faithfully doing his will every day of your life? That's the question. That's going to be number one on the list when we face God in judgment. And Paul is saying that every tongue will confess at that point. Every knee will bow at that point. I think there is some degree of gratification in knowing that the most ungodly person on the face of the planet will one day bow their knee to God, they will confess that Jesus is Lord. The question is, it's kind of like, you remember the old Fram oil filter commercials? Pay me now or pay me later. That is, if you use our product, that you will ensure that your car will go much longer, it'll have a much longer life and operate properly but you're going to pay me one way or the other. Either pay for the oil filter or pay to have your engine uh, rebuilt. And, and in a spiritual sense, in a more serious sense, God is saying, hey, you've got an opportunity to confess the Lord right now. And sometimes it's going to take some courage. 
And sometimes you're going to feel like you're swimming against the stream of popular opinion. You're going to be living in a world and in a society that does not believe and does not hold the same conviction that you hold about who Jesus was. And and they aren't willing to confess him. In fact, they'll make fun and ridicule and criticize people who do. But that's the time when you need to step up and say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And when you do that, you can know that our sweet Lord is going to confess your name before his heavenly Father. And isn't that a wonderful thought? So while Philippians 2.11 says, should... Bow, that's subjunctive mood, I looked it up, indicating the purpose of, of being given this excellent name. Romans 14, 11 is indicative mood, mood and that, what that means is that men may now, by their own choice and free will, bow to him and acknowledge his lordship. Or someday, if you don't do that here, you will do that by compulsion. You will be forced to bow and confess. That's one thing that the blind man saw. On the road to Damascus. He came to see Jesus as Lord. Not just the leader of a group of religious zealots. That he was in fact the son of God. Here's something else a blind man could see. And I think this is almost as important as the first point. He came to see himself as a sinner. In those wonderful beatitudes that began the Sermon on the Mount. One of them says blessed are the poor in spirit. For they shall see God. Poverty of spirit is an essential element in our approach to God, isn't it? It it recognizes that I am a sinner, that I do need what God can offer to me, and and I, I need what Jesus did for me that I could not do for myself. Now, previously, the Bible tells us, to just if you read just the three chapters that we've talked about already this morning, Acts 7, 8, and 9. If that's all you know about Saul, you would come to appreciate that, that Saul was pretty satisfied with where he was. That's kind of where we are in our nation, aren't we? A lot of people, it's very difficult sometimes to, to share the good news with them because they think they're all right where they are. And so there's got to be that awareness. There's got to be that, that, well, I'm overusing the word, but transformation in our minds that causes us to recognize that, hey, I, I, I'm not okay where I am. Acts 23 and verse 1 Later, when, when Paul, as he's then known, as Paul is telling people how he was converted to Christ, and obviously everybody would want to know his story because here again he was at one time a persecutor of Christianity, and now he is probably the most renowned preacher of, of, of the gospel message. And how, how in the world did that, uh, that change take place? And, and so Saul had occasion to, to recount that on a number of occasions. So you can find the account of his conversion here in Acts 9. This is kind of real-time record. But you also find it over in chapter 22 and again in chapter 26 of the book of Acts. And so those three chapters kind of flesh in some blank spots for us in terms of how all of this transpired. And how Saul came to be Paul and and how he became the most dynamic gospel preacher that probably ever walked this planet. But he'll let you know as he did that audience in Acts 23 and verse 1 that while he had been persecuting the church, he said, and these are his words, not mine, I did that in all good conscience. That just tells you that Saul thought he was doing the right thing. He never violated his conscience. In all of, the, all of the times that he sought for documentation in order to have Christians incarcerated or killed, 
He, he, ne- it never bought, he never lost a night's sleep over any of that. And that certainly squares with Acts 26 and verse 9 where he said, and I'm quoting, Indeed, I, I myself thought I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. But he came to see himself as a sinner in need of a Savior. On the road to Damascus, this blind man saw what many people in the world today still don't see, and that is that we need a Savior. We need someone who is willing to shed his blood for our sins, to cover our sins, to forgive us our sins, and to impute his righteousness to us so that we can stand justified before a holy God. And and once he understood that, then it wasn't at all difficult to convince him to be baptized to have his sins washed away. I have found that to be true, and I'm sure you have too, as you've attempted to share the gospel message with others. Once people recognize their own sinfulness and the fact that I am lost where I am, it isn't difficult to talk that person into the baptistry because they're willing to do anything, anything necessary in order to make sure that my standing before God is what it should be. And and, and that's exactly what happened here with Saul. He came to see himself... As a sinner, I remember reading a story, and I've shared it with you a few times, about the London Times back in the day. They requested that certain theologians send in essays. And, and they thought that back in when it was allowed and legal to do that kind of thing, to actually put something in the newspaper that had to do with religion and Christianity in a positive light. But that's what they were doing. And so there were certain theologians there in, in, in England and they were asking them to, to write an essay. And they, they said, here's what we want you to write about. What's wrong with the world? Now just think about that in regards to our own circumstances. If you were to be asked to write an essay or to give a short talk about what's wrong with the world. And that's exactly what these men were asked to do. These noted theologians responded. And G.K. Chesterton's essay was certainly the shortest. Remember again the topic, what's wrong with the world? His response was this, dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. That's the spirit we're talking about. What's wrong with the world? I'm a sinner. I'm a man of unclean lips. The world needs to change and it needs to start with me. And, And that's what Saul came to realize And that's what we need to realize today if we come to Jesus and we bow at the foot of the cross and we say, please, please cover my sins with your precious blood. Paul would later write in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15, this is a faithful saying. I think we mentioned this passage maybe three Sundays in a row, but boy, it works here too. I mean, it fits right in. This is a faithful saying Paul would write to Timothy. And worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. The version that we looked at, I think, two weeks ago said, of whom I am the worst. Paul realized exactly where he stood before God. I mean, he had a spiritual mirror that he was willing to look at. And sometimes we look at a mirror and we go, well, you know, there's not a whole lot I can do about that. You know, I I can either have plastic surgery or plastic explosives, something to, you know, to help my physical appearance. No, Saul was looking at his spiritual appearance and saying, here's what needs to be changed and I'm willing to change it. And I'm just announcing this morning something I know that all of you know already. And that, that is no person is, is suit, a suitable subject for salvation until they first come to the sobering awareness 
of the fact that they're lost. And once we understand that, and I mean understand that in the very depths of our heart and our consciousness, then we're ready to come to God and to make amends and to do what we can in order to be his children again and to come back home and have the Lord turn the light on for us and say, you are welcome to my house, son or daughter. Heard about a man who was trapped in the upper floors of a burning building and the firemen were, were holding a safety net on the ground below because the window was so far up in, in the building that their ladders could not reach and they urged him to jump. Problem was the man was terrified of heights and so he wouldn't jump and, and he shouted to the firemen below, what happens if I miss the net? And one of the firemen shouted back, what happens if you stay where you are? And that's a spiritual question that all of us need to ask at some point in our lives. Here's a third thing that this blind man saw according to the text. He saw that Jesus and his church were inseparable. That is, they were linked in a very real and concrete way. The Bible says that Saul had, had persecuted the church. That's Acts 8 verse 3. He made havoc of the church, I think is the exact language there. So he's persecuting the church. He's persecuting, as we just read a moment ago, the way. That was what it was called back then. Those Christianity and, and the way, the life that they represent, the person that they follow, the disciples that they assume to be. And then Galatians 1.13, Paul says this, For you've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how that I persecuted, here it is again, the church of God, beyond measure, and tried to destroy it. And then if you look at Philippians 3 verse 6, he makes another reference to the fact that he was always, had always been persecuting the church. But notice the contrast. On the road to Damascus, when Jesus confronts him, Man to man, he, he's looking at Saul, he's talking to Saul. Saul doesn't look around and say, no, I wonder who he's talking. No, he knows who he is addressing. And so there's this very private, intimate conversation that is cutting and penetrating to Saul's heart. When he encountered him on that road, Jesus asked Saul, you know the question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 4, I think it is, of Acts chapter 9. Why are you persecuting me? Now, now, logically, Saul could have easily said, but, but Lord, I, I never laid a hand on you. Because he hadn't. Not, not in a personal way, but, but how could this be? How do we reconcile those two ideas? Well, clearly, by persecuting the church, the body of Christ, Saul was at the same time persecuting Christ, who is the head of the church, according to Ephesians 1.20 and following. The body and the head are inseparable. Don't you think that Saul came to understand that even right there on the road? He recognized that hey, when I'm persecuting the body of Christ, I'm persecuting Christ. I'm doing great harm to him. He takes it personally when I persecute and, and I have executed his own people. To persecute the church is to persecute Christ himself. Our Lord said in Matthew chapter 25 verse 40, Inasmuch as you did it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you did it unto me. This blind man eventually came to see that. You can't have Christ without taking his body, which is the church, Colossians 1.18 says. Here's another thing he saw. He saw that he needed to make a change religiously. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got a list of people, and I have for many, many years of people in, in my own sphere of acquaintance 
that I would love to see become New Testament Christians. But the problem with that is that until they recognize that, and until someone like me or you are willing to share the good news with that person, there'll never be a change. Because this word that I'm holding in my hand is the power of God to salvation. It's not what people think about Christianity. It's not what magazines might say about it in articles about Christianity. It's what God has said in his word. That will be the words that judge us in the last day, according to John chapter 12 and verse 48. And Saul finally came to that point where he recognized that maybe, just maybe I've been wrong. That's hard though, isn't it? And the reason that it's hard, I think, is just one word, pride. To acknowledge that that I've been wrong, and especially like Saul, for all this time. And then to think of the extent to which he had taken that, excuse the lack of grammar here, that wrongness. That he had been in error. That he had been, in fact, diametrically opposed to the word and the will of God by killing his people. So he finally comes to realize that maybe I need to make a change. And, And boy, again, what a change that was. Because the Bible goes to some length in places like Philippians 3, verses 3 through 6. Check that out sometime to tell us about Saul's rich Jewish heritage. This man wasn't contemplating, should I become religious? He had been religious his whole life. He's questioning the, the fact, should I, should I do what God wants me to? Not just do I, and someone has aptly said, Christ came into the world, not to make people religious, they were already religious, but to make them religiously correct. And that's the conundrum that Saul is facing right now. But he'll tell you also in that same passage, two verses later, Philippians 3, 7 through 8, that he counted that Hebrew heritage but loss in order for the privilege of knowing Christ. Everything that I ever believed about religion, I am willing to throw away. And in order for, for me to experience the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. And from what we, we learned that, re, that regardless of our religious heritage, change is possible. And change is sometimes absolutely necessary. And I don't know about you, but in my attempts to share the gospel with people, sometimes that's the hanging point. It is to help them to understand without offending them that maybe... Maybe your, your thought system has been going in the wrong direction. Maybe I've been wrong about this. And, and that's the tougher issue, isn't it? When I'm looking at my own relationship to God and I recognize that, that I've been wrong religiously. Sometimes we hear, but, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard this. So if this is correct, if, if what you're telling me is right about what to do to become a Christian and the nature of the church... That means that my parents and and maybe my grandparents were wrong. And that's a hard pill pill to swallow, isn't it? Years ago, I heard the best response to that question that I've ever heard. If what you're telling me is so, if what I'm reading here in the book of Acts in particular is correct, then my parents were wrong religiously and so were my grandparents or maybe my favorite uncle or whoever. Here's the best way I know to respond to that. If your parents or grandparents were alive right now, and they know what you know about salvation and how to obtain it, aren't you sure that they would make 
the necessary change and do what's right. And secondly, don't you just know that they would want you to make that change as well? They want to see you go to heaven. They want the best for you. They love you. And that's exactly what they would want to see happen in your life. Here's a final thing that Saul, the blind man, was able to see on the road to Damascus. And, and, and this is an essential element in becoming a Christian, folks, so we can't leave it out. And yet so often overlooked in our religious world, he saw that he had to do something for salvation. That there was something required of him in order to respond appropriately and obediently to the word and the will of God. Look again, if you will, at Acts 9 and, and lock in on verse 6 for just a moment. So here, here was Saul's response to that. When the Lord asked, and so it's hard for you to, to kick against the goads, and he trembling and astonished, verse 6, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And you remember how that later Ananias came by the Lord's decree in, and to speak to Saul and to give him words of eternal life. And I've mentioned several times, I think recently, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, that'd be a real hard visitation assignment to accept, wouldn't it? Because this guy had been responsible for killing Christians, and yet you want me to go in and talk to him about how to save his soul. But that's exactly what Ananias did. And praise God that he was willing to do that. Think about the tens of thousands of people that are in heaven right now because of the work of the Apostle Paul. And Ananias' courage and his willingness to share the good news with that man. So you'll also notice the Lord's response. When he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, you arise and go into the city and there it'll be told. He didn't say, hey, you don't understand how this works. There's nothing that you can do in order to attain salvation. So many people in our day are so locked in on the idea that there's nothing that we can do to respond to the love, the grace, and the mercy of God at all. Nothing you can do. No, that's not what Scripture says. There are things that we need to do, we must do, in obeying the word and the will of God in order to be able to have our sins covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. That doesn't earn you heaven. You couldn't live 10,000 lifetimes and still earn heaven. We've got to get that on straight. But there are things that we must do to show that we're responding appropriately to what God has offered to each of us. And then look at Acts 9 and verse 18. Here, here's exactly what he did in response to Ananias' instructions. The Bible says, Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he, was, he arose and was baptized. Somebody has said, that if there was nothing that Saul needed to do in order to be saved, he didn't know it, Ananias didn't know it, and the Lord didn't know it. Because the Lord told him to go into the city and there it will be told you what you need to do in order to be saved. And I think that is a proper assessment of this passage. You see, salvation is not something that is done to us, as, as Calvinism teaches but it involves our response of faith and obedience that culminates in the act of baptism that puts us into Christ where his blood washes our sins away. I, I, I'm just afraid that countless millions are being led astray religiously today, having been told that there's nothing they can do to obtain salvation. Folks, we need to agree with God on this matter. He's the one who's determined how we need to be saved. There is something that we need to do to show that we love him and that we are obeying to his plan to save every one of us. Now, one thing about Saul that we haven't mentioned is that his life's objective was the same before conversion as it was, was after conversion. 
I think that we would all be safe and, and justified in saying that Saul wanted to go to heaven his entire life. He just didn't know how to get there, at least for the first part of his life. But for all of his life, he wanted to do the will of God, and he wanted to go to heaven. And so nothing changed that in, in the conversion. He, he still wanted to go to heaven. But now he knew how to accomplish that. He, kn- he knew how to be able to access the blood of Jesus in his life. I remember that great classic uh, Alice in Wonderland. At one point, Alice says to the Cheshire cat, would you tell me please which way I ought to go from here? And the cat said, that depends a great deal on where you want to go. And, and, and Alice said, I don't much care where. And the cat responded that it doesn't matter which way you go. That's right, spiritually too, isn't it? So with Alice, so with us. Every one of us in the world, you see, without proper goals and objectives in mind, then we will wander aimlessly in the darkness of sin. And yet Ananias had the courage to go in and tell Saul, here's exactly what you need to do. And then later in Acts twenty-two sixteen, the Bible will say that he told Saul, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Isn't it amazing how that so many people, even in, in our Christian community, say that baptism has nothing to do with your salvation? That's not what Saul heard. That's not what Ananias said. That's not what the Lord decreed. You need to be baptized, Romans chapter 6, 4 through 6, in order to reenact the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. And only if you are raised in his likeness are you someday going to be raised at the end of time. That was Paul's conclusion in Romans 6. Don't accept my word for it. Read it yourself. So we need to decide first and foremost as to where we want to go in eternity. And then we can do everything that we can in keeping with the directives of God in order to get there. But just like Saul, our heart's desire must be to live with God both here and in eternity. We can't be like that indecisive cowboy that I heard about who jumped on two horses and rode off in opposite directions. No, you got, you got to make a decision. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. You'll hate the one, love the other. You'll cling to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You got you to gotta decide. And, and I would recommend deciding before you get to the edge of the baptistry. You need to decide right now where you want to go in eternity and who you want to serve. 